Button and listening to Puck Junk Podcast number three. I'm Sal Barry. With me is Tim Parrish. Tim, what shall we talk about today? Uh, well, there's been some recent developments in the uh, new coaches slash GMs being hired in the NHL, so I think that'd be an interesting topic of discussion for a few minutes. All right, so uh, we got B and we got B. We got Babcock and we got Brodeur. Shall we start with Brodeur? Sure. Okay, so uh, Martin Brodeur signed on as assistant GM of the St. Louis Blues. That was probably the best move he could have done. I mean, it's obvious that there wasn't any room for him in New Jersey, right? Yeah, and I think I think all along that was kind of the idea when he took that job as you know, kind of the emergency goaltender uh, earlier in the year and then ended up retiring. I think there was a lot of talk that he was going to take a front office job at some point or another, so it was only really a matter of time before he did. I'll tell you what this reminds me of. Back in uh, 1991, so now we're going way back, so right before the 91-92 season, uh, Doug Wilson, who was a defenseman for the Blackhawks, now he's the GM for the Sharks, he asked to be traded. He no longer wanted to play under Mike Keenan. They did not get along. However, Doug Wilson had a no-trade clause in his contract, so he basically told the Blackhawks, you have to trade me, but I get say where I get traded to. The only team that he would be traded to was the San Jose Sharks, which is why the Blackhawks got such a lopsided deal for the all-star defenseman. As a kid, I knew what Wilson was up to. I said, you know what? He's got a couple more years and he's going to retire and he's going to retire into an organization that's brand new and there's going to be room for him. Whereas you look at other organizations like the Red Wings or the Blackhawks or any other one where they kind of already have a lot of like retired players that they would consider hiring as a scout or consider hiring as a as a coach or an assistant coach or whatever. So I knew back then that that's what Doug Wilson was doing. He was he was thinking about the future and I mean look, 25 24 25 years later, I mean he's still GM of of San Jose, but after he retired as a player, he worked his way up. Martin though, uh he's he's not he didn't really work his way up here. No, and but I think he's got the reputation that carries for him. He's been in the league a very long time and he's got a lot of success that follows along. So my only puzzlement, I guess, from the whole thing is of all the guys that are out there that you could put into a GM position, I mean, obviously he's assistant GM, so he, he's not number one on the totem pole, but he's, he's pretty close. But of all the guys that are out there that you could do that, why pick a guy that, for lack of, you know, for lack of anything else, doesn't even have coaching experience, really? Right. And I think of, like, Patrick Waugh, and nobody criticizes Patrick Waugh because what did he do? He coached in junior for, what, almost a decade or a decade? So he paid his dues. So he knew that he kind of had to start from ground zero, not just, hey, I'm Patrick Waugh, make me your coach. I don't know anybody that thinks of Martin Berger as a blue, as a St. Louis blue. I, I, I don't know. That's just me. Yeah, no, I think that's just a lot of people. I mean, again, smart move on his part. Lou Lamorello said, oh, we'll have a place for him. We'll always have room for him. You know, he'll be back with us once the season is over. Then Lamorello moves up to president, hires, uh, you know, Shero as GM. And obviously it's like, you know, you look at, say, like Steve Eiserman, right? He had to move on. 
he had to move to you know to Tampa Bay to become GM. There wasn't room for him there in Detroit, but he did what he did in Detroit for a while, and then he moved on. So you know maybe this will be the reverse with Broder, where he gets some experience in St. Louis and then goes back to New Jersey. Well, I'll be real interested to see how much of a primary role he plays in a lot of the decisions going forward. Well, we never really know that, though, would we? I think in this case you probably will, just because of the the high profile that he is. What general manager is going to say, I owe this great decision to my assistant? Well, we'll, we'll probably see firsthand when it comes down to the draft. You'll see Marty sitting there along with the rest of the guys. Yeah, maybe he has another kid they could draft, right? You never know. Shall we, uh, shall we move on to Babcock? Oh, Babcock. Mike Babcock. That's my favorite subject of the last week. Really? Why? Because how polarizing of a figure Mike Babcock has become. You either love the guy or you hate the guy. And I think that was kind of the case beforehand, but even more so now because of the team that he chose to, I guess for lack of a better phrase, take the money and run. Uh, the fact that he signed on for Toronto for a $50 million contract, which is unheard of for a coach in the NHL. But yet, here he is, sitting at the helm of one of the most storied franchises in all of the NHL that's got boatloads of money to pay whoever they want, but no talent on the ice to lead to a cup. This could be the greatest move they ever made or the world's biggest backfire. He's an excellent coach, but I believe that he's an excellent coach that was in an excellent system, and it was like everything was working. Here's the thing. Look at his track record, okay? He was on Anaheim, right? Yes. He went from Anaheim to Detroit. Yep. Why did he go from Anaheim to Detroit? Because he thought he was going to get fired. So he took off. He saw the writing on the wall. As a coach in the NHL, your days are numbered. They're always numbered. Because unless you're putting a winning product on the ice, you're probably going to be the first one that gets the axe. And so he saw the writing on the wall. He knew where it was going. He took off to Detroit. Detroit paid him. Detroit had a great team. They had a young team. They had guys coming up. They had leadership. And he was able to lead them to Stanley Cup. Granted, the following year they lost to a certain team from a certain state, a certain area of another state, which I'll, I'll let them remain nameless for the time being. But, you know, he still led his team to two finals in a row. And... You know, yeah, they've had some issues in the last few years with putting a championship-type team on the ice, but I don't think they've been out of the second round. I mean, they've been into the second round of the playoffs every year since then. I mean, yeah, losing Lidstrom to retirement and everything, that was probably tough for them. But, you know, still, Babcock was a good coach. He was able to take star players, make them play together, make them play as a team. Now that he's going to a team that... Let's face it, okay, they've got Phil Kessel, they've got Dion Phaneuf. Are both of those guys playing to their potential? I don't think anybody would say yes to that. I mean, with all the problems Kessel had over the last year and problems with management and the fights back and forth and everything else, it makes me question uh, his actual leadership skills and his ability to, to be a, that star key leader on a team. And Phaneuf just hasn't been playing up to potential. I mean, here's a guy that a lot of people consider you know, a top you know, a top 10 in his position at one point. Now, I don't know that you can say that. I don't know that you can even have that conversation. Are these guys not playing to their potential, or are they just trying to do too much with too little? They don't really have the same supporting cast to, say, Chicago or even Pittsburgh. 
you know, to some extent. Playing to potential versus playing with, you know, scraps. I mean, it's different. Talent is talent. And if, if you have the skills, you're going to put them on the ice regardless. You put Duncan Keith on the Toronto Maple Leafs and he is not going to be the same player. I don't want to get into this argument about Duncan Keith and his, his skills as a player. He's a good player, but I think Duncan Keith feeds off of the other talent on the ice. He's a much better player because of his supporting cast. Exactly. You know, these guys on Toronto, they're not the Taser Kane. You can take Taser Kane and drop them anywhere else, they'll still be Taser Kane. You can take Crosby and Malkin and drop them anywhere else, they'll still be Crosby and Malkin. Together or separately? Separately. Together, separately, right. it doesn't right. matter. Right, they'll elevate the rest of the yeah. team. You could put Stamkos anywhere else in the league, and he would still be Stamkos. The guys on Toronto, they don't have that type of player on Toronto right now to be able to put in any type of position, take the helm of the team and say, look, here's our new coach, here's what he's done in the past, here's what we can do with him. You've got all these young guys, you don't have the leadership, and I think it's going to be rebuilding year. The problem is, even still with a rebuilding year, Toronto fills the stadium. They have rabid fans. I mean, other than Montreal, I can't think of another team that has as rabid of a fan base as the Leafs. I, I, I can't think of one. I mean, yeah, Blackhawks fans are rabid. I mean, sure, you can make a case for anybody, but when it comes down to it, I think the Canadians and the Leafs have the two probably best, most rabid fan bases. How long are they going to put up with it? I mean, really, you, you pay this guy all this money, he comes in, if you don't build him a supporting cast and surround him with a bunch of players that can actually put a product on the ice that everybody's going to be able to buy into, I don't know. I mean, really, I, I, I honestly don't know. The other point to this is, before you, know, before you, you have to say something else here, how many times has an NHL team paid a coach a ton of money where he's won in the past, and he's successfully able to take a basement-dwelling team and bring them up to up to snuff. How many times? I can't think of any other than maybe a couple examples where they've gone from being a sub-500 team to maybe being a, a cusp playoff team. Probably the only example I could think of is Mike Keenan with the 93-94 Rangers. Yeah. So, I mean, here we got one example in the last... 25, 30 years of a guy that, you know, at least we can think of off our heads without doing the research. Obviously, if there were more, we would probably remember them and think about it. So I don't know that Toronto is going to immediately be a winning team on the ice. I think it's going to take a couple years. They're going to have to draft well. They're going to have to make some trades. They're going to have to pull some developmental players up. I think it might be two years before you see them as a strong playoff contender. Maybe three years before they make it out of the first round. More power to them. I mean, they're really the only team in the league that had the money to pay Babcock that amount. I mean, let's be honest. Yeah, Babcock, I mean, he stressed that this is not going to be an overnight sensation. It's it's rebuilding, and he knows that. And if, if Toronto truly commits, if uh, Brendan Shanahan, I should say, and, and Toronto truly commit to the eight-year as a plan... I think my only problem with this is that I feel like a lot of Babcock's success has had to do with the players that he was given to coach, which, you know, is Detroit's drafting and their grooming of the players. I mean, where, you know, maybe this player could have been in the NHL a year sooner, say like a Thomas Tatar or Gustav Nyquist or whatever, but they'll keep him in the AHL another year, they get really good, and then by the time they're 25, they step in and they're they're doing great. 
Yeah, and that's exactly it. You've got a, a completely valid point there. You can take a mediocre coach, make him look like a stellar coach if you surround him with the talent. That's what separates the good coaches from the bad, and they always say that, is the good coaches can take a team of you know ragtag people and turn them into superstars. Well, eh, I don't necessarily buy into that. You know, Not every team is the bad news bearers. You can't make a winning team out of chaos. You really can't, and it takes a while. So that's why I stick with my original point. Three years, four years, maybe even five before you see Toronto back up to maybe a perennial playoff team. And with what players? It should be interesting to see who stays, who goes. Right. Once the draft is done, maybe a few trades happen then, and uh, see, you know, is Kessel still around? Is is uh, right. Kadri still around? Yeah, and Babcock doesn't seem to me to be the kind of guy that puts up with a lot of crap from people. I, I could seriously see, regardless of how anybody is or how anybody's perceived, regardless of what their contract is or the role they play on the team, I think everybody's probably expendable at this point. But no general manager so far, just an assistant general manager. Right, and I think that played into the decision for him to actually go there because of the fact that he's going to have way more say in the direction that the team goes going forward. He's going to have the decision on who they draft, who they trade for, the, the players they pick up, the guys they bring up from the minor leagues, be, having that coach-slash-GM type position, kind of like Patrick Waugh has, it gives them a lot more power in the long run, and I think Babcock enjoys that. And So do you think that's why he went for it then? Do you think that was the reason? Like, look, because here, there, there, carte there could be There could be a hundred different reasons why he went with it, and, you know, you're going to read all these articles that, you know, him going out and saying, oh, it wasn't about the money, you know, it's never been about the money, I don't think about the money. Come on. Of course it was about the money. If it wasn't about the money, he would have went to a team that's a contender and can actually win a Stanley Cup. It was about the money. The only team in the NHL that could pay him $50 million, the only team that has more money than God himself, is the Toronto Maple Leafs. They don't pay anyone anything. They hoard their money. They keep it in a locked room. They probably swim in it like Scrooge McDuck. They have so much of this money... They were the only ones that could put that onto a paycheck for a coach. Well, it's not like they're paying, you know, a couple of high-priced tree agents. They're not paying anyone. They haven't. Fans of the team wonder why, you know, why they can't win and why they can't do this. They don't pay anybody. Okay, but they're they're going to pay the coach, so maybe this is going to turn things around for them. They went with the most highly sought-after coach that's available Maybe even not available. I mean, if you were going to look at all 30 NHL coaches, I think he'd be on the short list of, of a coach that most people would just want to hire. A, a lot of that based on the success, but a lot of it based on that he, he seems like he has a, you know, he's got a good head on his shoulders. Well, yeah, every single team that didn't make the playoffs and every team that exited the playoffs in the first round this year were considered one of the teams in consideration for actually picking back up. But look, who won out in the end? The team with all the money. Don't sit there and say, it's not about money. It's about opportunity and this and that. Okay, fine. You want to further your career as a coach slash GM? Great. But you could have done that anywhere. You could have won. You could put a, a winning team on the ice, won five or six Stanley Cups in the next 10 years, and rode off into the sunset as one of the greatest coaches that's ever lived. Or you can get paid 
do your five years before they buy out your contract or do your whole eight years there in misery and despair and then go back to Detroit with your tail between your legs because that's where you like to live. All right, let's talk cards. My favorite. I recently went to Target and I bought a whole bunch of 2014-15 Clear Ultra hockey cards. was kind of thinking about these after we talked about the old school Fleer Ultra set last week. Uh, I'm looking at these 2014-2015 Fleer Ultra cards right now in my hand, and I'm wondering, why did I buy these? Well, first of all, if Target had cards, it was no longer Target, it's Target, because that's high scale. That's the first thing you have to kind of clarify there. Any Target without cards, that's just Target. But if it has cards, it's Target. Those of you listening out there, just wanted to clarify that. Okay. I will agree with you wholeheartedly 100% on this set, because... There's really not a whole lot of personality going on in these. If you're looking for your father's Fleer Ultra, you're definitely not going to find it with uh, 1415. Here's the first thing that really bothers me about this set. A single pack of these cards is $3.49. We'll just say $3.50. You go to Target, as you call it. You buy a pack of Upper Deck Series 1 or Upper Deck Series 2. It's $2.99 for 8 cards. You buy a pack of Fleer Ultra, it's $3.49 for six cards. So right there in my mind, I think these cards need to be better. If you're getting 20% less cards and you're paying 50 cents more per pack, they should be nicer cards than Upper Deck Series 1, Upper Deck Series 2. And they're really not. And I think that's the first thing that bothered the hell out of me. There's 200 base cards. There's 30 redemption rookies because this came out before the season started. They do that thing that you hate where the picture on the back is the same as the picture on the front, just cropped. I don't hate that. I mean, yeah, you're right, I hate it. And then I'm looking, there's like four lines of statistics on the back. So when you had competing companies back in the day, when you had Donruss and you had Fleer and you had Upper Deck and you had Score and they were all different companies and they were all trying to outdo each other. I could kind of see why you might buy more than one set. Sometimes they did different things. You know, maybe this one had more players. Maybe this one had more rookies. Maybe these had some pretty cool subsets that you liked. I look at these, there's just nothing to them for me. I did get a Road to the Championship card, which is printed on like shiny foil and it's die cut and has like a reprint of a ticket. Which I think is funny, on the back it says, Congratulations, you have received a trading card with a manufactured replica playoff hockey ticket. Really? This is a replica? I really thought that all playoff tickets were two inches tall and shiny, and then it says, Enjoy your memorabilia card, and then it's signed by the ghost of Richard P. McWilliam, who passed away a few years ago, the former head of the Upper Deck Company. They should have just stopped at the first line. Congratulations, you've received a trading card. Period. And that was it. <laughs> you know, Upper Deck should just put that on the back of every card. Congratulations, you've received a trading card. Enjoy your trading card. Well, I mean, in my defense here, I also received a Road to the Championship. This was back when these came out. I picked up a few rack packs from the retail. And I actually pulled a Road to the Championship. And it was one of the conference finals versions because to add to the Road to the Championship misery... Not only are they existing, but they also have a tiered 
set. So, you know, you're looking at, they have conference finals, which are usually what you pull. Uh, I think that's like one out of, one out of every box, I think, has at least one of those. But then they had um, the conference semifinals, which I think were one out of 58 or 60 packs. Conference finals, which were one out of 164. And then they had the Stanley Cup ones, which were something like one out of 300. So there was a rarity in the tiers that, that they threw out there. But you're right. There's nothing exciting about them. They don't uh, scream to me that this is some kind of premium that I should be paying an extra dollar or two more a pack for. You're talking about the base cards, right? Yeah, that and, and even the, you know, the inserts. Like, like I said, the road to the championship. Okay, yeah, it's got some foil printing. Big deal. It's not something that I haven't seen before. Road to the Championship almost seems like to me, as an insert set, what Panini Contenders was as a regular set. Yeah. You know, when 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 Contenders came out, that's the whole purpose of Contenders. It's supposed to give you that feel of a ticket kind of thing. And so it's almost like Upper Deck ripped off that idea and stuck it into a shadow box type card and thought everybody was going to eat it up by putting rarity stamps on them by making them tiered. Well, that didn't really happen. So Again, I, I kind of agree with you. I don't think I got anything special here. The fact that uh, you're paying a bigger premium for the pack than you are of, of a set that everybody loves, like you know Series 1 or Series 2, kind of rubs me the wrong way just because I'm expecting more um, considering the price point. One thing that I found annoying, the retail packs are $349 for 6 cards. The fat pack is four ninety nine for twelve cards. So it's like for a dollar fifty more you get twice as many cards. So right there I don't quite understand that because usually fat packs are like fifty uh fifty cards or or forty cards or thirty two cards. You know they're they're more than <laughs> more than a dozen. Thirty two, yeah at least. Then just for the hell of it I bought a blaster box. One thing I thought that was sneaky and this is something that Upper Deck used to do for a while and they stopped was they would never tell you how many cards per pack in a blaster box and then what would happen is you'd buy say like a pack of upper deck it might be eight cards per pack you buy a blaster box and it would say eight packs or whatever but then those packs only have five cards now they'll print on the box how many cards come per pack they didn't do that here so i kind of bought it more out of curiosity like ooh, i get eight packs for twenty dollars well, that's way better than 350 a pack times however many, you know. But these had five cards instead of six cards. So, and, and they don't say that. They don't advertise, hey, you get one less card per pack. You think you're getting the same packs. And I could see, like, a parent saying, you know, oh, well, why don't I just buy you this box? It has eight packs, and they're thinking that they're getting eight six-card packs. And I know it's only a difference of one card per pack. That's eight cards right there. But then if you look at, like, say, Upper Deck, uh, Series 1, Series 2... It was a difference of three cards per pack. I think we're both in agreement that, that this one definitely, wherever they were aiming, they, they missed. You know, even the design of the cards, you know, you're, you're expecting Fleer Ultra. And knowing Fleer Ultra in the past, just look at the cards. They're white borders. The majority of the cards, if you flip through, um, you know, a stack or two of them, you're going to notice that a great majority of the photography is taken directly on the ice or near a dasher board where everything's white in the background anyway. So these cards are very, very white. I mean, from edge to edge, it's white. The photography's not bad, but it's not full bleed. It's not edge to edge. When I look at this card and I feel this card, I don't feel like I'm getting anything that's super premium. So why should I pay the extra money when I can open a pack of upper deck, get a better shot at pulling a couple cards that I want, maybe possibly a young gun, which... 
even the crappy young guns still gain some some momentum on the secondary market and you know you have a much better shot in an insert you know these for what the inserts are you know you're replacing hits with inserts and hoping people are going to be satisfied with that I don't like any of these really I don't I don't really have anything nice to say if you got nothing nice to say I guess don't say it so um Maybe we should maybe we should uh, change uh, change gears and talk about uh, an old set. Yeah, let's change it up a little bit. We were going to uh, discuss um, one of the many offerings in the Pacific stable back in the late '90s, early 2000s, and that was the '98, '99 base Pacific. That's hard to say. Pacific, 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 Pacific set. Yeah. You know, one thing that I will say this about Pacific: when I collected hockey cards as a kid, and then I, you know, as a teenager, and then I stopped buying hockey cards for a while. I stopped buying them in '97, and then I started collecting again in 2002. But I didn't buy anything new, like no new product, until 2006. So I missed the whole Pacific time frame because they made cards from 97, 98 to, I think, 2003, 2004. Yeah, I think there might be an 05, 04, 05 set, but I don't, I don't know that they, they didn't go any further than that. Well, what, what's funny, though, is that so all these cards, whenever I see them at a show, they're like exciting and new to me because I didn't collect them back then. They did so much weird stuff with foil and the shiny and the variants and stuff. You know, I'll look at a rummage box and I'll find cards that I just, I've never seen before. And they're always like late 90s, early 2000 Pacific. So for me, it's kind of like a buried treasure, like something that I didn't know existed. They're not hard to find, but it's just like, oh, these cards are different. This is 2000, 2001 Aurora, okay, or Omega, or Revolution, or any one of the many sets that they put out. A lot of people are going to be familiar with a lot of the Pacific brands simply because Panini bought them out. You know, Panini owns the rights to most of the old Pacific brands, so names like Ground Royal or Titanium um, have all been resurrected by Panini. So people are being reintroduced to that, and those that didn't collect in the old time, they see, oh, well, there was Titanium back then. Oh, well, there was Crown Royal. Well, yeah, but it was Pacific. You know, this is one of those releases, the 98-99. This was in the thick of the overproduction of, of Pacific that was Pacific. You know, the base set was was something that was... Uh, 451 cards, by the way. 451 cards. I always thought it was odd that they had a base set considering how many other sets they had that came out. I mean, you had the uh, the Crown Royal, you had Dynagon Ice, you had, you know, they had their Titanium inserts, you had Omega, you had Paramount, you had Revolution. So the fact that they came out with just a basic Pacific set, I found to be interesting. But at the same time, when I was picking up cards back at that time, these were everywhere. If any place had cards, these are what you found. Between this set, between the Paramount, and between the Revolution, you found them pretty much everywhere. I picked up quite a few of these back in the day. Generally, you'd find these in a box. I think it was 36 packs a box, 10 cards per pack. Um, so it was a pretty good value. The base cards are, are, are nice. They're full bleed. Good action shots, most of them, along the lines of upper deck. The base cards have players' names along the bottom in silver. 
It's like a silver foil along with the team logo that's surrounded by a, what looks to be like a shape of a puck kind of flying across the card. And then the Pacific logo in the corner. So you had the base cards. They were all silver. And there was a red parallel, which I'm not sure how many, how those fell uh, exactly. I'm not sure what the collation of those was those. But then there was also, an, they called it ice blue parallel, which uh, those fell about one every 70-some packs, I believe. So there were parallels to Chase as well as the base card. So plenty for the set collector and the uh, player and team collector to go after. What intrigues me, though, about these, usually on the backs of cards like you brought up about Flare Ultra, you know, you have this whole card back, you recycled a photo, you slapped the logo on the back, and now you only have room for four years of actual game stats. On these, it all depends on the player. If you kind of shuffle through a, a handful of these coming out of a set, you'll notice that a lot of the younger players have all of the years of stats included on the back of the cards. Yeah. The low amount of years that, that the player played, or the least amount of years the player played, the more information they put about the player on the back. I'm looking at Wayne Gretzky's card right here, and they have all his statistics going back to 79.80, so all his NHL statistics. So all of his stats are on the back, but it probably doesn't have anything, any little tidbits of information about him. Nope, but it still has his name, height, weight, birth date, another picture. Right, right, right. It'll have their bio stuff on it. Like, I'm looking at one right here. It's the Pavel Bure card. Okay, he started in 91, 92, or his first year of stats. Well, now they have five or six different little things about little tidbits of information. All of the years he led in different categories, or he did this, or he did this as a player. So it, it kind of mixed things up. Things weren't very dry and stale. Not only that, the card backs, they're pretty colorful, red and blue. They got another picture of the player on them. This is one place where Pacific actually did a pretty good job is they always made the backs of the cards as interesting, if not slightly less interesting than the front. And I'm going to say that this is one of those sets that you can find pretty cheap nowadays. I mean, it wouldn't be unusual to find the complete set for like $10 or under $10. A huge part of that is the rookies. You know, people are always looking for sets that have the great rookies in them. I dare anybody to go through the checklist of the set and find me a great rookie. Well, I'm looking at the checklist right now. We got Mike Rosinski. Okay. Mike Crowley. Yeah. Crowley. Sergey Varlamov. Okay. Well, there's, there's a name that some nope, people may have nope. heard of. Sergey. Not Samyon. Oh, sorry. That must be his cousin. Jeff Nielsen. Tom Askey. Todd White, I remember him as a Blackhawk. He was a farmhand for a long time. Norm Miracle, also remember him. Sheldon Soray is the only one I remember in this set. Scott Frazier, Peter Worrell, well, he was an enforcer for numerous years. Sure. Eric Hood, Sheldon Soray, yeah. Vladimir Chebaturkin, fun name to say. What do we got? Zach Birk, Daniel Markov, and that's it. So, yeah, 14 rookie cards in the set, and Sheldon Soray is about the best one of the group. Yeah, I was going to say, Soray, Peter Worrell, and uh, Norm Markle, probably the only three that even the casual hockey fan may not have heard of those names, but some of them may have. Yeah, but if you get this set for 10 bucks, I think this is great. I mean, I got it in pages. I got it in a book. It's on my shelf. Yeah, it looks, looks great in pages. You know, one interesting tidbit that I've been meaning to share about the uh, 98-99 Pacific set it's 451 cards. However, there was no card number 66 made. Really? Because Mario Lemieux retired at the end of 90, what was it, 96, 97? Yeah, 
the first time, yeah. So in 97-98 Pacific, so the previous year, Mario Lemieux was not issued as a part of that set, and then they did the same thing again in 98-99. They skipped card number 66, Mario Lemieux. No card 66. Well, I mean, when I say card number 66, they, you know, like, the actually what was interesting is, like, the first 99 cards... A lot of it tends to follow the number of the player. So, like, card number four is Rob Blake. Card number five is Nicholas Lidstrom. Card number seven is Chris Chelios. Card number eight is Timu Solane. Yeah. You know, you get to, like, I'm looking at, like, the 30s. 31 is Grant Fuhr. Oh, well, makes sense. 32 mm-hmm. is Trevor Linden. 33 is Patrick Waugh. 34 is John Van Beesbrook. 35 is Tom Barrasso. 36 is Matthew Barnaby. And these were their jersey numbers. So they made them also their card numbers. So that's what they did for the first 99. That's why Wayne Gretzky is card number number 99 but there is no card number 66 so what do you think of that i think that's a awesome tribute to one of the greatest players that ever played the game if he's not on the ice and you can't make a card of him then don't bother putting his number in the set there you go makes sense to me i wonder how many kids were like i don't need any of them except number 66 and kept buying packs and, and never getting that card that explains why they have one extra card in the set yeah, well, yeah, why there's 450, why the last card is number 451 out of a 450 card set. That is interesting. I did not know that. Shall we end on that high note then? We should. Although I don't know if Mario Lemieux retiring is much of a high note. But a tribute to Super Mario, that is always a high note. All right, well, there you go. Well, everyone, thank you for clicking that play button, and uh, we'll talk to you again in a week. <laughs>